0: There's a sense here in which we see Isaac repeating some of the challenges faced by his father Abraham. We shouldn't be surprised by this. God doesn't change and people don't change, so we expect to see some repetition. Or better, we learn to spot certain patterns in God's fatherly dealings with his people. Here, we see Isaac tested by a famine. Few things make a man feel smaller or less secure than the infertility of his wife and the infertility of his fields. A man who cannot start a family and a man who cannot feed a family is very likely to become a man of prayer. So it is here. That's what we're watching over these chapters. We'll begin reading the text at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Here we see Isaac doing better than Abraham with this particular challenge in that he does not go down to Egypt. Egypt here represents the immediate and the carnal. This is the solution of the flesh. This is Hagar all all over again. But Isaac does better. He resists the temptation to turn his back on the long term in favor of the short term. And he stays in the land that God had promised to give him. This is faith. This is an act of faith because there is a famine in the land, right? There's a there's an absence of water. This doesn't look to the eyes of natural man. This does not look like where he should be. Egypt looks like where he should be. but God told him to stay. Isaac is growing and maturing, but he still has a long way to go. And we see that illustrated in the next part of the story. Verse 7 goes on to say, When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. Well, here we learn that the sins of the father very often are visited upon the children. At least Abraham could claim that Sarah was technically his sister. Isaac could do no such thing. This is a bald-faced lie, and he knows it. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. One of the older translations translation says, sporting with his wife. I think we're to understand what that means, okay? Verse 9, so Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this that you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. First thing we should say here is that Isaac underestimated the virtue of his neighbors. He assumed that Abimelech and his people were all sexually immoral and inclined to rape, murder and wife stealing when clearly that wasn't the case. Abimelech knew that adultery would bring a curse upon the man who indulged in it. Even without reading the book of Proverbs, he seems to understand this aspect of social wisdom. Proverbs six twenty-seven to 29 says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not get burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Now, this reminds us that the outline of the law of God is written on men's hearts. We call this conscience, and all people have it. Of course, conscience can be sharpened by actual knowledge of the word of God, and it can be dulled by repeated defiance and transgression. But it is there to a greater or lesser extent in all people. Thanks be to God. Now, less significantly, we should also say that the name Abimelech repeats in this story, likely because it was less of a name and more of a title. It means, literally, my father is or was king. So it was probably the name for the hereditary leader of the people in this city. The same is likely true of the name Phicol, which we will meet again later in this chapter. It probably means something like commander or general. Verse 12 goes on to say, And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Now, remember, this is during a famine. The Lord blessed him, verse 12 goes on to say, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now, the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Here we see that Isaac is blessed materially as a result of the promises of God. And again, we need to remember that the Bible has a somewhat complicated perspective on material wealth. Far more complicated, I think, than most Christians tend to acknowledge. It cannot be denied that God intends to bless his people materially. God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. We teach that to our children in the catechism. But we people do have bodies. And therefore, if you want to bless people who live in bodies, then those blessings are certain to have a material quality. That's not a bad thing. God is not opposed to material. In fact, it is a form of heresy to suggest that God is opposed to physical and material things. That is the heresy known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism taught that spirit was good and material was bad, and therefore salvation was about escaping the material. They viewed the body as a cage for the spirit. Well, to state the obvious, we believe that God took on flesh and that he will resurrect his people into physical bodies to live in a reconstituted physical universe for all eternity. So our story is explicitly material. It's a physical story, and God wants to bless his people in physical, tangible, material ways. But that doesn't necessarily mean that all believers will be rich in this life. There are many reasons for poverty in the Bible. We can't go through them all here, but this we can say for sure. God does not want his people to be poor. He wants them to be rich, and they will be rich, though not always in this present life, but they will be rich. Jesus said in Mark 10, 29 to 30, truly, when Jesus starts a sentence with truly, guess what, it's true. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So there, Jesus says that there will be rewards and persecutions in this life, but then in the age to come, we will enjoy eternal rewards without any persecution, loss, or Diminishment. He said in Matthew 6, 19 to 20, do not lay up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So putting that all together, we might say that God wants us to be rich and he promises us that we will be. Some of it may come in this life along with persecutions and troubles, but most of it will come in the next life where we will enjoy riches that will never rust, tarnish, or fade. So we see that, that, that basic formula. We see that illustrated in the story of Isaac. God blesses him materially, but because this world is sinful, because it has fallen and not functioning correctly, Isaac's wealth actually brings pain and loss into his life. It creates envy and conflict with his neighbors and forces him to leave the place where he had been living. So it is this side of the new heavens and the new earth. Pick up the story in verse 18. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also, so he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. In general, Protestants have shied away from allegorical readings of the Old Testament, and generally speaking, I think that is the course of wisdom. But there is such a thing as typology, and it is commended to us in the New Testament. Paul uses the Greek word tupos multiple times, twice in 1 Corinthians 10 alone, where it is translated as example. He also calls Adam a type of Christ in Romans 5.14, which says, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Same word. So, the New Testament tells us to look for patterns and examples that illustrate the life of faith, and some have seen such a pattern in this story of Isaac digging again the wells of his father, Abraham. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote an entire book, one of my favorite books, called Revival, where he basically argues Based on the pattern of this story, based on the example of Isaac digging again the wells of his father Abraham, he basically argues that back is the way forward. He says that when the people of God lose their way, they should dig again the wells of their father Abraham, return to the old sources of spiritual nourishment and blessing. Now, I think that is true. I love that book, but I think I would say that the point he is making is more easily argued from other more obvious texts. I'll leave it at that for now. Far be it from me to disagree with Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Verse 23 goes on to say, From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there and there Isaac's servants dug a well this is a classic covenant renewal passage god frequently repeats and reaffirms his promises to the covenant community isaac then responds by building an altar and worshiping the name of the lord this is a further reminder to us that worship is essentially response to who god is and what god promises to do on behalf of his people. Verse 26 says, When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzathath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So he said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they arose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba, And therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Abimelech sees that Isaac is blessed by God and prospering, even in a famine, even in a waterless land, he is eager to be at peace, formerly, with the one that he had persecuted and cast out. Now, there's a principle here which we want to be careful to take note of. It isn't merely that we are blessed that attracts the attention of our neighbors it is that we are blessed in adversity and that we are blessed despite persecution. That's what Abimelech noticed. And that is what caused him to attribute Isaac's situation to the hand of God. Therefore, it is not congruent with the life of faith as we see it in the Bible to expect the absence of hardship or the absence of sickness or the absence of loss. We won't be without those things until we get to Revelation chapter 1 and the new heavens and the new earth. No, no. Biblical faith expects blessing in hardship, blessing in adversity, blessing in pain, blessing in sickness, blessing in loss, and blessing despite persecution. This is what gets noticed. This is what brings God glory, and this is what grows faith in God's people. Thanks be to God. Verse 34 says, When Esau was 40 years old, He took Judith, the daughter of Biri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Here again, we see that Esau is not a man of faith. He's a man of appetites. He did not consult his parents. He married poorly, rashly, and for reasons that are not hard to imagine. Even though God's choice was primary, we see again here, It was not unjust. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population with less than two percent of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at Into the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at IntoTheWord.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the Into the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.